Hello and welcome to the men's global live stream where we are poised to finish uh, our series in the book of James, a series that we've called James for Every Man Building a Faith That Works. And through it, we've been reminded that as a Christian, we're not called to a life of either faith or works, as if we could separate the two, but rather, uh, just like James has been encouraging us, our faith and our works should work together. Right? Our faith and our actions, the things that we believe and the things that we do should both line up that we would be consistent people where our, our works actually would reveal the faith that we have. And today, we're going to turn to some really challenging portions uh, of this letter as we get into chapter 5. And as we close, it's really important to remember that, you know, we've been looking at the unique perspective that James had as, as Jesus' brother, but... Let's never make the mistake that the wisdom that we've received, that we've been combing through, somehow originated with James. James might have been the scribe, or you know, maybe vessel's a better word, but the book of James, just like every other book of the Bible, was authored by the Holy Spirit. You know, this has been God's word for us, not just the insights of a man. It's important to remind ourselves of that as we finish up. So, this passage of James, like I said, chapter 5, may be the most intense warning that James offers us as, as his readers. If you look at and listen to some of the language that's used and how seriously he's dealing with all the topics he goes over today, it's clear this passage is very important. And I believe the Lord wants to impress some things on our hearts uh, as well as the hearts of the original audience of the letter. And I want to give you an encouragement and a bit of a challenge as we get started, it's this. Stay with me. Because you're, there are going to be some places and you're going to be tempted and it's going to be really easy to think, well, he's not really talking to me right now. This passage is for some other people. Heck, this passage is for some other people I know. But it's, it's, not, it's not for me, which is not true. I want to encourage you that this passage is for each of us. It's for you. It's for me. Even if you're tempted to tune out, stay with me. Don't assume that any portion of it doesn't apply to you just because he starts by addressing the rich. Now, for most of us, uh, for many of you listening who live within the United States, when you hear the term rich, you think mega rich. Your mind goes to boats and planes, and multiple properties, and exotic locations. And that might be what you think about whenever you start to hear a letter addressed to the rich, or warnings, rather, for the rich. And I know that many of you have maybe heard some of these stats of what I'm about to give you, and it's very easy to gloss over. It's very easy to get used to some of these stats, but here's the reality. We serve a global Savior whose desire is for the entire world world, whose encouragements and his challenges are written for all people of all time. And so, if we serve a global God, it serves that we have to have a global perspective. We have to have a global perspective of what it means to be rich. It's got to expand to reach everyone. It's a good reminder, not just when we're talking about wealth, but when we're talking about all encouragements in the scripture, we have to adopt a global mindset. We have to have a global mindset. In this case, we have to adopt a global mindset about wealth and a global mindset about poverty. Listen to this. 
for those of us who don't think we're rich, if you have any food in your refrigerator, now that's leftovers, the beginning of the meal, that strange jar that no one knows exactly what it is. If you have a complete outfit on right now, including a coat and shoes, if you sleep indoors, you're standing in front of 75% of the people in this world. 75%. If you have any money in the bank, if you have some spare change or loose dollar bills anywhere in your house, in between the cushions of your couch, underneath your seat in your car, you just move to the top 8% of the world's wealth. But we can't just think of wealth and riches in terms of, of money and in terms of finances. What about our access to life-giving resources, stuff that we all need like available and abundant clean water where most of us go to the sink and turn it on? 25%. One out of four people in this world do not have access to clean water and almost half, 45% of the people in the world, don't have access to sanitation. Half the world's population has no access to medical care of any kind. Now, depending on how you're watching this live stream, how secretive you have to be about carrying God's word with you while you're out in the open, when you want to think about being rich, think about the fact that when you gather without fear and open God's word and sing worship on Sundays or when you gather with your brothers and sisters during the week, well, you have 360 million brothers and sisters that live in countries where it's either illegal or dangerous to do that. That's an increase of over 20 million in the last two years. So, when this section encourages and challenges the rich, let's just assume he means us. Because I think globally, it's very hard to argue that we're not included. All right, this is God's Word. We're diving in. James chapter 5, verse 1. Grab a Bible. I'm going to be reading and teaching from the New Living Translation. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away. Your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver have become worthless. The very wealth you were counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. The treasure you've accumulated will stand as evidence against you on the day of judgment. For listen. Hear the cries of the field workers whom you've cheated of their pay. The wages you held back cry against you. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You've fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You've condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Wow! What a heavy, heavy passage, heavy warnings as we get into this. Let's stack hands on a core truth because we can be tempted to make false assumptions that are not clearly spelled out in this passage or anywhere in God's word, and that's this. Money isn't evil. The love of money is. Money isn't evil. The love of it is, in the same way that money is not inherently good, it's, it's arbitrary. Money just is. One of the most often misquoted passages of the entire Bible is 1 Timothy 6.10. And most people quote it by saying, money's the root of all evil. Money is the root of all evil. It's not what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, for the love of money is at the root of all kinds of evil. 
and some people craving money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Money is not the issue. What James is talking about here is a heart issue that's revealed by how we spend our money. In, in 1 Timothy, he's also getting at a heart issue, a heart that is drawn, that longs for, that desires, that loves money. I mean, look at the word that's used, right? Love. It's talking about desire. It's talking about things that people crave. They sought after money. It's a heart issue. In these passages, the object of the heart happens to be money. But like we said, money itself is not the issue. In our passage, James isn't just talking about the love of money. He's really talking about two much bigger ideas. He's talking about trust, and he's talking about generosity. Trust and generosity. We'll start with trust. Look at verse 3. James says that the wealth the people had was corroded. Was corroded. Corrosion is the process, right, where the atoms of the surface of a metal become oxidized. Right? The surface of the metal becomes permanently damaged over long periods of time. James is saying their wealth has started to rot because they've hoarded it. Because they've hoarded it. Because they've kept it. They've let it sit and they've let it rot. The hoarding of the wealth speaks actually to both sins of the heart that we're talking about. These people have hoarded wealth because they put their trust in it. I'll tell you guys from real and honest living, it's a lot easier to trust God about your future when finances are not a problem. That's just a reality. It shouldn't be so, but it's so tempting when you can solve many of your own problems to avoid taking them to the Lord. And so we falsely begin to trust in our resources. It shouldn't be like that, but I'm just being real. There have been times in my life when finances were, were not a problem. And it's very easy to say, I trust Jesus with everything when I could take care of most of my own problems. I spent 15 years right after graduating college in corporate America in various settings, various industries, always in sales, in, in national sales and sales management. The last job I had in corporate America was a terrific job with a company that I loved. It had great hours. I rarely had to travel. The pay was, was great for our family. And then God came knocking. God called us into ministry. And so living in South Orange County with four children, we took the jump. We said, Jesus, we've said we trusted you for a long time. But now we're actually going to give you a chance to show up according to how you promised you would in your word. We had said we trusted God. But now it was chance to put that on display. And you know what? It was challenging, it was scary, and it was beautiful. Nothing has built my faith more like having to trust in Jesus and then watching him show up. And I've experienced his miraculous provision in more ways than I can even recount to you right now. I've begun to count on him rather than on myself. Look at what that passage says. The very wealth that you were counting on will eat away at your flesh like fire. These people as we're so often tempted to do as well, were counting on their wealth. They were depending on it. They had placed their hope in it instead of the Lord Jesus, even though God's so clear throughout the Scripture. It's God that gives us the ability to produce wealth. 
Every good thing that we have comes directly from him. And yet our eyes so often, like a child's, go to the gift and not the giver. Am I saying that wealthy people just can't trust Jesus? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying it will take effort for all of us because our temptation is to trust in our wealth, in our abilities to solve our problems. Guys, the human heart is a throne. It's a throne. And it desires to have something sit upon it, something that we can place our trust in and our hope in, something we can worship. And most often, it's us. It's us that sits on the throne of our heart, calling the shots, living to honor and please ourselves. And the secondary temptation is to trust money. Why? Because it's the vehicle to allow me to worship myself. It's the easiest way to worship me. But the issue isn't just that we would count in or trust on money. It said here that they had begun to hoard it, to let it stay with them, to not give it away because we cling tightly to the things that we place our trust in. Will we cling tightly to Jesus? Will we cling tightly to money? The encouragement not to hoard wealth goes back to Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 6 where he says, don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves cannot break in and steal. For wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. Wherever your treasure is, wherever your desire is, you're going to cling to that thing. Christ is saying in this passage to us, we have a choice. We have a, a binary choice. We can store treasures here on earth or in heaven, period. There's no diversified portfolio where I put a little bit in heaven and a little bit here on earth. It's a question of focus and priority. Jesus is placing to us a question saying, what's going to be the aim of your life? Where's the end zone? Where, where are the points scored? What's going to be the hope and goal and aim and direction? Because that's going to influence where your efforts go. They're going to go towards your goal. James said that this corroded treasure, see again the reference for how long it's been held, will testify, testify against us on the day of judgment. Like a witness being brought in to testify will be the wealth that we've piled up for ourselves. Why? Why would my money testify against me? Because I was blessed to be a blessing. I was blessed to be a blessing. There's intention behind God's gifts. What he gives to me, he wants to give through me. I was given so that I might give. God has shown such incredible generosity. Scripture says he's lavished his love upon us and his hope would be that I would turn around and do the same. I have four kids and how do you think I would feel if I left for a day and my wife and I took off, right? We went and spent a day away and I left my oldest son with, with a bunch of money for the day. And I said, feed your brother and your sisters. Take care of everybody, watch them. I'm taking some of what is mine, I'm entrusting it to you and I want you to use it to make sure that everybody eats, okay? And what if I get home and my son is sitting there in a new outfit with the, with the remains of a steak dinner in front of him while his brothers and sisters are hungry and unclothed? 
Now, do you think I would be happy, excited for him? Ask him how his steak was, check out his new clothing, or do you think I'd be very, very upset and disappointed that I didn't see my heart of generosity modeled in him? Why do I think my Father in heaven would have a different experience when he looks down on his kids? When he looks down on me, why do I think that he wouldn't look at me and say, Dusty, why did you hold on so tightly to all the stuff that I gave you? Didn't you realize I wanted you to share it with your brothers and sisters? Was all of this goodness that the Lord has entrusted to me intended for me alone? In Matthew chapter 25, verse 14, we read the parable of the talents, one of my favorite stories in Scripture. I love how it starts off. Right? This is Jesus talking about what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a man going on a long trip. He called together his servants and entrusted his money to them while he was gone. Look at that last sentence. He called together his servants and entrusted his money, not their money, he entrusted his money to them while he was gone. The expectation that God has for us is to steward what he's temporarily entrusted to us well. Whatever we've been given comes with it an expectation. We're expected to use his money, right? And not only his money, but whatever he's put in our hands, every talent, every treasure, every ability, all that we are, all of the things that God has given us to manage for a time, we're intended to use well to build his kingdom. That's God's hope for us. That's God's intention. That's, that's what we see in the parable of the talents. Take a look back at our text here, James Chapter 5, verse 5, lays this out in even gnarlier language. He says, you've spent your years on earth in luxury, satisfying your every desire, taking care of whatever it is that you wanted. You've fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. How gross is that? It's like a picture of a cow or a pig just shoveling food in its mouth, just consuming and consuming and consuming. And now all of the stuff that we've stored up for ourselves, all of the treasures that we've amassed, all of the things that we've, we've held onto and kept and trusted that's begun to corrode, all of these things now serve as evidence to our own selfishness. Am I saying that we're not called to prepare? That we're not called to plan, to save for the future? Absolutely not. Scripture encourages us often to prepare for the future. But how can I justify setting aside more money for my future when there are people dying today. With, with the reality that there are people who have not yet heard the good news about Jesus Christ and my resources aren't being used to get that gospel to them. Because either the gospel is the hope of the world or it's not. It's either my goal, the thing that my heart is desiring, my treasure, or it's not. You know, whenever we talk about money and wealth, it just gets hard. It gets uncomfortable. It gets weird because we have competing voices. We have people preaching that God wants us to be rich, that his desire is that he would bless us with money, and that 
We feel guilty if we don't give it away, right? So now we're supposed to give it away. We should give it away. And we just want answers, right? We want brass tacks. Okay, so tell me how much I'm supposed to keep and how much I'm supposed to give. And the worst thing we can do when talking about money is to try to devise some type of legalistic formula about how much is okay to spend on a car or a house or how much we should give to God. We need generous hearts, not equations for giving. We need hearts that hope and trust and depend on Jesus. Not hearts that somehow have, have produced the amount of money needed for all things and then Jesus can have the rest of my heart and the rest of my trust and the rest of my, my hope. It's about getting back to a heart that as followers of Jesus would, wouldn't just be attached to the things of this earth. And if, if any of our questions are just trying to answer, so how much of the stuff that God's given me is it okay for me to keep? I think I usually know the answer. It's not about having money. The problem is when money has us. The problem is not having things. It's when our things have us. When the things of this world control our hearts, and control our minds and our desires. It's only a matter of time before they'll control our pursuits and our plans and our passions. Because what we desire will work to acquire. What should then consume us? What should be the driving force in our life? The return of the Lord Jesus. The new heaven, the new earth, our greatest hope, the reality that this life is a glorified camping trip. It's short. So let's not argue about money and stuff and, and what we should and shouldn't keep and how much we should give and not, and rather ask, why do I long for these things so much anyways? Why do I keep buying more and more stuff for myself when others are in need so desperately? Right, because it's that type of thinking that Jesus Christ rescues us from. He rescues us from us. He rescues us from ourselves, from a selfish outlook that seeks to get and puts a new heart in us that desires to give, a heart that looks like His. He starts to transform us. He gives us hearts that don't think how much they should give, but rather think what a joy to give, hearts that desire to give. And it's so interesting following that train of thought to where James goes next. Verse 7, dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Our greatest hope, consider the farmers who patiently wait for the rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. So James moves from talking about having a lot in this world and then maybe now starts encouraging those who are, who are struggling in the current life, those on the other side of that coin, those who would maybe due to their life circumstances love to see Jesus come back right now in this moment. And what James starts to encourage them in is a huge encouragement to us because we live in a right now generation. And we've talked about this many times, but we don't like waiting for anything. I mean, we, we end up at the grocery store and, and we're looking at how many people are in every single line and how many items are in their cart and how fast is that checker and that lady's writing a check so I can't, I can't go into that line. As if we're, we're moving through NASCAR, right? Looking for openings in a race to where? 
right? Everything in our lives, our, our screens provide constant connection, communication, entertainment, all day, every day. And as a culture, we've lost the ability to wait. We've lost our ability to be patient and still. James is encouraging us here to be people who patiently wait upon the Lord. But that's just how God operates. God is in the waiting. God is in the waiting, and I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what you're waiting on. I don't know if you're waiting on work, if you're waiting on forgiveness and the restoration of a relationship, if you're waiting on a diagnosis or healing. I don't know what it is that you're waiting for, but here's the encouragement. Let's not hope only in the outcome. Let's choose to hope in Jesus Christ, in the waiting. Not just waiting for the end, but let's find hope in the person of Jesus while we're in the middle of our waiting. Let's be people who've anchored our hope in Christ, not just in the end of our trials, in the removal of that struggle, or in the restoration of these things we're praying for here on earth. Because ultimately that goes right back into our conversation about where our trust is. Look at verse 9 and where he goes next, kind of as they're waiting. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. Isn't it interesting, the progression, right? We've gone from the trappings of wealth, hoarding and trusting, and that money actually corroding and testifying against us to the encouragement to wait patiently for the Lord, placing our hope in Him. And now he's saying, and as you wait, while you're waiting, don't argue amongst the other followers of Jesus who are also waiting. God is calling for unity, knowing that the struggles of this life, the everyday struggles will cause us to get at each other. We change the way we speak and care for each other and it has nothing to do with how the other person is performing. As followers of Jesus, right, we change the manner in which we speak. We speak with grace and love and patience where the pressures of our life are going to force us to be short and angry and judgmental. But God's calling us to live beyond our circumstances, to display real love that results in real unity with other believers. And he goes on to give us some examples. Look at, at verse 10 for examples of patience and suffering, dear brothers and sisters. Almost like, I want you to know what this looks like. Look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We give great honor to those who endure under suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him in the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. God and His Holy Spirit, through James, is calling us to consider the example and the work of the prophets. Yet, if we look at the lives of the prophets, okay, most were rejected, many were persecuted, nearly all were, were ostracized and misunderstood, few were actually listened to, most were outright ignored, yet all were completely focused on God's call for their lives. And that's supposed to be our encouragement. How encouraging. People who struggled to share a tough message with an audience that didn't listen. 
Where is the encouragement in that? I think the encouragement is this. Don't use the world's standards of success. We're being told this is success, this type of life. It says that those who, who display endurance receive God's kindness and they've received honor. But we can't use the world standard of success because when the world defines success for us, success in the eyes of the world is always synonymous with ease of living, with comfort, usually with excess, right? The good life is defined as, as being accepted and honored and celebrated by those around us. It's a life focused inward. Basically, it's a life in complete opposition to how the prophets live. Ease of living versus a challenging life. Acceptance by everything we do and say versus questioning and rejection. A life focused on me versus a life focused on, on God's will. So what do we do? Right, as James is winding down the encouragement to the followers of Jesus who had been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, to those who were standing tall in a culture that wanted nothing to do with what they believed, that was living in direct opposition to how they believed they were called to live, people who wanted to, to live lives where the things that they said were, were proven true by the things that they did, consistent people, people with a faith that works. What's the answer? James says this. Pray. Pray. And look at how he unpacks it. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? Call together the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. James calls the people of God to be people of prayer. And here's the tough reality for you and me. The amount of time we spend in prayer is a direct reflection of our opinion of prayer. The time we spend in prayer reflects what we really believe about prayer. If we believe prayer is effective, then we pray. So the amount of time that we pray reveals our heart towards prayer. It's also a measure of humility because prayer is our opportunity to look to God first in humility and submission to seek his plan and his wisdom that he's promised us, not just as a last-ditch effort when all else fails, but rightly seeking God first. And I'm going to be honest with you. Prayer is a mystery to me. Prayer is a mystery to me. I don't fully get it. I mean, Jesus prayed. Jesus, the embodiment of all wisdom, one with the Father, knew all things that the Father knew. So prayer can't be just about learning things that we don't yet understand because Christ already displayed all knowledge. And it's not just about changing God's mind or being uncertain about the future because Christ knew all things. I think based on what James has taught us in the last five sessions, I think prayer is the key to a faith that works. I think prayer is the key. I think it's how I line up my heart and my hands. It's how I submit my will in order to be led by God's will instead. It's, it's where in honesty, I pour out my heart to God, sharing whatever's on my mind, whatever's on my heart, the things I desire, the things I don't understand, crying out to God like David did in, in the Psalms and just, and just being honest with my creator. 
and then in humility, receiving whatever it is that he chooses to do or he chooses to reveal. And I don't fully understand why God did it that way, but as a follower of Jesus, I pray because Jesus prayed. Pure and simple. My king prayed, so I pray. Even when I don't understand it, I lean in and God meets me in those times of prayer. And when we pray, let's not just speak, let's listen. Let's learn to be men and women who listen to the voice of God, who, who, who give him a chance to respond. You know, just before the Lord's Prayer in Scripture, we see the disciples had actually asked Jesus a question. They had said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. Show us, show us how to do it. Of all the things they had witnessed over the last several years, they really could have asked Jesus for anything. You know, Jesus, food has been hard to come by. Can you show us that trick you did with the loaves and fish? Because that was pretty cool. You know, wine's expensive. That thing you did at the wedding in Cana, that was, that was pretty cool. Could you, could you show us how to do that? You know, as a surfer, I probably would have been like, hey, the walking on water thing could really come in handy when the surf is big. And I mean, and also that whole Lazarus back from the dead thing. I mean, how did you do? No. Those who were following after Jesus asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Because the early disciples connected the power and the purpose of Jesus Christ to the manner and time and focus that he gave to prayer. And they wanted that for themselves. So here's the question for you and me. Does our prayer life reveal that we believe prayer is effective? Or does our prayer life show that prayer is something that we resort to when all of our own efforts have failed? You know, and as a community of men, of brothers following after Jesus. I love that James throws in verse 16 because after that succession and that, that call to pray, even though there's some interaction there with the elders of the church, we can walk out and think that, so the Christian life is monastic, right? It's me and God and I go away and I pray all day long and it's just me and him and quiet prayer and, and that's really where I'm gonna develop a strong spiritual life. Verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has power and produces wonderful results. Now, notice it never says confess your sins to each other in order to be forgiven. Forgiveness comes from Jesus Christ alone. Period. What he's saying is this. In honest prayer and confession and community, we're going to experience healing. We'll experience healing through this cycle of prayer and confession because this isn't a one-time experience. It's a lifestyle of reflection, of allowing the Spirit to search us and reveal the deep things of our hearts and then confessing that to Him and then talking to a brother and confessing cycles of sin we're stuck in so that God would choose to heal us, real, lasting, life-changing healing. That's what it looks like to live out a faith that works. It brings healing. Guys, James has walked us through a giant overarching contrast 
because he's laid out in these five chapters kingdom principles about what life looks like for those who follow after and profess the name of Jesus. And he's contracted them with the principles that this world lives by or what comes naturally to our flesh. But James has also reminded us that all of the things he has revealed to us is not accomplished by human will and white-knuckled effort. We don't tame our tongue. The Spirit does. In our flesh, we'll always show preferential treatment. Remember the sin of partiality that we read about? That's going to be what's natural. But the Spirit will create a new heart in us, a heart that sees the outcasts and moves towards them and brings them in on our own. Would we ever consider trials something to be celebrated? An opportunity for joy? That's only the work of the Holy Spirit in us. So here's the question. Will we submit ourselves to the Spirit? Will we hand the keys of our life, the control of our life over to Him? Or will we just glance over to Jesus every once in a while to get a a nod of agreement and, and keep on keeping on our own way. You know, throughout this series through the book of James, there has been the very real question of will our actions and our intentions line up? Will our faith and our belief, will our being and our doing line up like Abraham's did, where it says that his faith and his belief worked together, his actions and his beliefs, they worked together? Because here's the reality. There's a huge difference between being a Christian and being a disciple. And James is calling us to discipleship. Being a Christian is easy because salvation is a gift. It was all Jesus moving towards us. It happened in a moment when Christ rescued us. Right? He saved us. He did all of the work, came all of our way. And I'm not talking about salvation. But I am asking the question, what did he save us to? Christ's call to his followers when he left this earth was not to make Christians or believers. It was to make disciples. Those who would choose him in the everyday mundane struggles, the difficulties of life, those that would submit their own will in order to be led by his. It was to make apprentices. That's the picture. You know, is, is someone who's following along and learning after and keeping in step with someone who knows more than they do, deferring what they claim as knowledge and receiving what the master knows, laying down everything they are. And this is the invitation for us to set aside every desire and plan we have for our life, everything that we hope for. Everything that comes naturally, our, our fleshly desires, everything we hold dear in order to follow after Jesus. You know, in Scripture, the word Christian is only used a handful of times. But the word disciple is used hundreds of times. God's desire for us is that we would become his disciples. Not arriving in a moment, but growing daily, following after him in honesty with everything we are, leaving no part of our life in the dark, but turning it all over in humility and trusting that the Father, through the power of his Holy Spirit, would reveal the places we don't yet look like the Son, that we might become more and more like him. That is his desire for us. That is what it looks like to have a faith that works.
Heavenly Father, we submit ourselves to you. God, there are so many distractions inside my own heart and in the world around me. But I want to be your disciple. I want to be your man. God, I want to have a faith that works. The things I profess, the things I believe, that they would work themselves out. God, that the things you've entrusted to me I wouldn't keep for myself, but I would use to build your kingdom. That I would find my greatest hope and my greatest joy in knowing that one day you'll return. Jesus, may we be men who live towards that day in every moment, in every decision, seeking you in prayer, confessing in honesty to one another and experiencing your healing. Keep us unified in all of this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.